Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about relationships between women in ancient Rome. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They're the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of historical and modern racism, sexism and queerphobia, as well as of prejudice against intersex people in the ancient world, including infanticide of intersex children. It will also contain discussions of castration and clitoridectomy, explicit discussions of sex, and some explicit language in quotes. We also include mentions of bestiality, excessive consumption of alcohol, relationships between adults and minors, rape, and slavery. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please skip this episode and check out our other content instead. So we've talked about ancient Rome a fair bit on this podcast, and we've talked about Roman women's sexuality once before in our episode on the so-called Two Maidens of Pompeii. I'm going to talk about some examples from Roman literature that I also talked about in that episode, but we are going to look at them in more depth than we did then. So you should still get something out of this, even if you've heard that episode recently. Well, I meant to re-listen to those episodes, including that one, and I fully didn't. So will I have the same reactions? No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> look, I re-listened to that episode and there were some things where I was like, look, what I said wasn't wrong, but it definitely could be better. So now it's oh, going to okay. be better. So well, ignore what I said then. All right. Was what we said also bad? <laughs> I don't think it was bad. It was just like we could have done more analysis than we did, basically. Okay. I think specifically that Pompeii episode I threw together in an afternoon because some emergency had happened. Yeah. So I put a lot more time and effort into this episode, so you can hopefully expect a better quality of scholarship. <laughs> okay, so to give you a quick overview of the structure of this episode, we're going to start off by talking about how sex between women fit into Roman models of sexuality. Then we're going to talk about how Romans understood female homosexuality, so whether they saw it as a behavioural choice, an innate part of a person's identity, or something else. And then finally we're going to look at a few pieces of evidence for women's relationships in Rome that, unlike all the other sources we'll discuss, actually weren't written by men and show us the potential for real women. So when you say Roman attitudes to sex between women, do you mean Roman men's attitudes? Roughly five of them. I do mean Roman men's attitudes, because with the exception of the few examples we're going to talk about at the end of this episode, every source we have comes from a Roman man. It's pretty much exclusively from literature written by elite Roman men. Cool. Okay. I just wanted to make you say that. Yeah. No, that's what you're in for. So, let's see how you remember what we've learned in the past. What do you know about Roman sexuality? The, pop quiz. the grid. The grid. What's the grid? <laughs> the teratogenic grid. <laughs> Yeah, the teratogenic grid. So the teratogenic grid is basically a grid of six ways of having sex, two by three. I did not know about this. (laughs) I don't think we explained it using these words in our episode on men's sexuality, but basically it's the idea that when you have sex, there is an active partner who is penetrating with a penis in some way. Not necessarily with a penis. Not necessarily with a penis, who is penetrating in some way. Okay, we'll discuss some of the ways later on. (laughs) (laughs) And a passive partner who is being penetrated. So those are the two categories. And then within that, there's three orifices that can be penetrated. All right. So you can have oral sex, you can have anal sex, or you can have vaginal sex. Frankly, I don't think society has moved far beyond this in their general conception of sex. A lot of people probably haven't. You're probably right. 
I mean, like, we've all heard the thing where people just, like, can't understand how queer women can have sex. Yeah. So I think that illustrates that a lot of people still are stuck in this kind of penetrative model of sex. Yeah. I want to make a joke here about how Romans have only active and passive sex roles, but Greeks have another sex role, which is the middle. But I'm worried that I made that same grammar joke last time. You did. Oh, no. (laughs) I did. I did. I remember. (laughs) Uh, I have not grown as a person. (laughs) I'm sorry. So, as you can see from what I've said about Roman sex having an active and a passive role, and generally the active role is the man and the passive role is the woman, though obviously it's not so simple, Roman sex is inherently an unequal act. It's not two people doing the same thing, two people having sex. It's one person doing something to another person. That seems healthy. Seems just healthy and cool. So we see this even in the language that Romans use to talk about sex. So they have completely separate vocabulary for the active partner in sex and for the passive partner in sex. So for example, if you're talking about oral sex, you use the word irumator for the person who is penetrating their partner orally and use philator for the person who is being penetrated orally. So, interestingly, when Romans talk about sex between women, however, they talk about sex as a much more equal act in the vocabulary they use. Not always. We'll get into examples where that's not true. But, for example, writing in the early 1st century CE, Roman author Seneca the Elder describes two women caught in the act of having sex. One woman is penetrating the other, so this still fits within the penetrative model of sex. She's referred to in the text as a sewn-on man, which implies some sort of sewn dildo or strap-on situation. But Seneca still calls both women tribides. So this word tribides is the plural of the word tribus, which comes from the Greek word tribane, which means to rob. So this is a word that Romans use to describe women who have sex with women. You'll often see it translated as lesbian, but I don't think that's 100% accurate because it doesn't imply exclusive sex with women. I don't think even lesbian (laughs) implies exclusive sex with women. I mean, that's a whole conversation, but, you know, some people would interpret lesbian that way, and I don't want them to assume that tribus should be interpreted that way. Okay. But etymologically, tribus, with its root being to rub, suggests a non-penetrative sex act that could be reciprocal between the two partners. As far as I'm aware, this word tribus is the only example in Latin where we use the same vocabulary for both partners in a sexual encounter. This idea of a relationship between two women as a relationship between equals also extends beyond sex. So I want to have a look at the example of the myth of Iphis, which is written by the poet Ovid in the early 1st century CE. There's a lot of gender going on in this myth that we're actually not going to get into in too much depth today, but I want to flag that Iphis is assigned female at birth, but I'll be using they-them pronouns for Iphis here. So to give you a brief rundown of the myth, when Iphis's mum is pregnant, their father reluctantly announces that if the child is a girl, he will kill her because he can't afford to pay a dowry. Although Iphis is assigned female at birth, their mum decides to raise them as a boy to protect them from this. As a teen, Iphis falls in love with and is betrothed to a girl named Yanthi. So I'm going to have a look at the way that Ovid describes Iphis and Yanthi at the point in the story before Iphis's transformation, when Ovid clearly understands them both as women. And he really emphasizes their equality, writing, The two were of equal age and equal loveliness, and from the same teachers they had received their first instruction. Love came to both their hearts and filled them both with equal longing. Yeah, that certainly is mutual and <laughs> equal. <laughs> yeah, that's he couldn't have hammered on him harder that that was an equal relationship. It's very interesting as well because Iphis has this monologue where they talk about how they can't be with Ianthi because you can't have a relationship where there's no man, essentially. And they say if only one of us could be transformed into a man, so this marriage could go ahead, but they don't even specify which one they want it to be. It's clear that they don't care. 
Despite Iphis being raised as a boy and eventually becoming physically a boy, Iphis is not a particularly like masculine partner in this pairing. They are equal yeah. in that way as well. We should do an episode on all of these like myths that have sex change in them. Yeah, yeah, no, we really should. I started like including some of it in this and I was like, no, that's a whole that's, other thing. Yeah. Like, there also just isn't that much scholarship on it that is good, yeah. unfortunately. So, you know, that'll be an easy time. That would just be a fun little one to bash out in a weekend. Yeah. Romans clearly weren't at ease with this idea of sex and relationships between equals. And I think we see that in Ivis's monologue about the fact that there cannot possibly be a marriage between them and Ianthi before they're transformed into a man. So the problem isn't like, but how would we have sex? The problem is like, oh, this is like too consensual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's both. So when Iphis is doing their monologue about how it's not possible for them and Yanti to have a relationship, they bring up the myth of Pacifii and the bull, which is the origin of the Minotaur, half man, half bull. And the myth is that Pacifii falls in love with the bull, dresses as a cow, has sex with the bull, and gives birth to the Minotaur. Sure, yeah. And the way Iphis says it is that like the relationship between Pacifii and the bull at least was a relationship between male and female, and they say at least they had some hope of the fulfillment of Venus. And Venus means love, but it also means lust and is used to mean sex. Okay. So what they're saying here is, look, at least between the woman and the cow, there was a penis to stick in a vagina. Basically, yeah. Do you ever think maybe that your scare of sex has just, like, <laughs> wandered too far away from what is reasonable? Maybe uh, so. Can I go back a little while and ask a quick question? So you're using they them pronouns for Iphis. Yes. What are you doing for Yanthi? I was just using she, her pronouns for Yanthi, only because we never get Yanthi's voice at all, so okay. we don't know anything about But Yanthi. they're both down to become a man. We don't know that Yanthi is down to become a man. Oh. Iphis voices that, you know, either they could become a man or Yanthi could oh, become a man, okay. and either way the relationship could be consummated. Okay, okay. But Yanthi never gets to speak. Okay. And this is all just, like, pretty hypothetical. Yeah. It just, like, turns out to actually happen. Yeah. yeah. Like, Iphis is just like, wouldn't it be nice if one of us could somehow be transformed into a man? And then that happens to them. So are you using they then pronouns for Iphis because Iphis was raised a boy? Or because Iphis is the one who says this? Or, like... Uh, because Iphis is expressing enthusiasm for becoming a man. Like, Iphis is chill with that. I'm using they then pronouns because there's a lot of gender going on that we're not talking about okay. today. So I didn't get into a deep analysis of how okay, yeah, we should sure to Iphis. So these are, like, hedging your bets, they then yeah. pronouns. Yeah, yeah, these are hedging cool. your bets, yeah, no, that's all fine. I just like, I don't know. Yeah, they're not like, check. I have committed to interpreting Iphis as non-binary, they then pronouns. They're, cool. I don't know and haven't thought about it in depth, they then pronouns. Okay. Groovy. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about why Romans seem uncomfortable and to even consider it impossible for there to be this relationship between equals. In the first century, CE, Seneca the Younger, son of Seneca the Elder, who we quoted before, writes that in the context of sex, women were, quote, born to be passive. Cool, 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 cool. cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so one factor in this discomfort with the idea of female-female relationships as equal relationships seems to be that it undermines the norm of women always playing the passive role in sexual relationships. And instead it creates a situation where the clear split of active and passive is called into question. So what does that look like? Let me read you a poem written by the first century poet Marshall to illustrate. This is quite a long quote. It's also quite a crass quote. Okay, from I'm ready. Marshall, from that filthy little man. <laughs> <laughs> I think Eli the other day referred to Marshall as like the worst of all Romans. I, wow. <laughs> I don't remember saying I don't. 
Deciding which Roman is the worst is truly a feat. Yeah. All the Roman men are pretty appalling. All right. Anyway, would you like to meet Marshall? Yeah, right. This is Marshall's poem about the woman Philinus. The trippers Philinus, buggers boys, and crueler than a husband's lust, pounds 11 girls a day. Well, well, she's getting it on. Damn, girl. Yeah. (laughs) Why 11? Is that a metrical choice? I think they have a word in Latin that just means like by 11s. In the same way that we might say a dozen to just kind of mean, you know, a number bigger than 10, kind of a lot. So it's not actually that Marshall's down there being like... What's a reasonable number of women to fuck in a day? That's lots. Ten? That doesn't sound challenging enough. Eleven. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. So she's pounding eleven girls a day. Yes, correct. Who is it? So Marshall goes on, with her clothes fastened up, she plays Hapastum, which is a Greco-Roman ball sport, gets yellow with sand, and with effortless arm rotates weights that would tax an athlete. Alright, so she's like butch. She's butch, yes. (laughs) Money from the crumbly wrestling floor, she takes a beating from the blows of an oiled trainer. She does not dine or lie down for dinner before she has vomited six pints of unmixed wine. God. (laughs) (laughs) To which she thinks she can decently return when she has eaten 16 servings of meat. When after all this, she gets down to sex, she does not suck off men. She thinks that not manly enough, but absolutely devours girls' centers. May the gods grant you your reason, Philinus, who thinks it manly to lick a cunt. Alrighty, let's unpack. First of all, let's get Philanus a motorbike. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, that sounds exhausting. (laughs) I do think it's funny that he opens with Philanus pounds 11 girls a day, but then at the end of the poem he's like, anyway, when she gets down to sex, like, is that after she's pounded 11 girls a day? (laughs) What's going on, Marshall? I wanted to point out two things here. So, the first is that, as you said, Philinus is very butch. She's being characterised as a very masculine woman, and we can see that even from our perspective without Roman cultural norms. Yeah. yeah. I hope she's having a nice time at, like, wrestling club or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. Then going and eating, like, 16 cheeseburgers or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Philinus drinks BB. <laughs> yeah, she does. She does. Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to list the ways in which she's masculine, but I think you've hit on all of them. All right, cool. Yeah, I think we have. I think we have. We've got it. <laughs> and we see women who sleep with women being characterized as masculine pretty often in Roman writing. Cool. So is the other woman involved just being slept with and she is not masculine? That's a very good question. Who's to say? So I think the questions that you're asking are kind of hitting on the problem that Romans also have with this whole situation, which we're going to talk about throughout the episode. Okay. Okay. Is that, you know, there's two women having sex. One is probably playing a penetrative role because that's how they generally understand sex. But it's still two kind of equal partners having sex. Uh, Okay. And Romans don't really know what to do with that. You know, is the passive woman behaving appropriately? Are both of these women inappropriate and masculine? Okay. They're like, Ah, my grid. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think maybe we should make it clear that, like, they didn't have the grid. Yeah, we as modern people have conceptualized this grid of active, passive, oral, anal, vaginal as a way of kind of understanding Roman sexual relationships. They did not draw this grid. I'm glad you clarified that because I was just in the middle of trying to figure out whether the grid was, like, a Roman understanding or whether we had... No. So we can kind of see from the vocab they used that this was kind of the way they broke it down, but they never drew the grid. Okay. So this idea of women who have sex with women being masculine does not just refer to masculine behavior, but can also be linked to the idea that they are physically masculine, having an enlarged clitoris, which they can use to penetrate like a penis. 
We see this idea of an enlarged clitoris discussed in medical texts, such as by the Greek physician Serranus, who practiced in Rome around the end of the 1st century CE. And I'll mention that there's a complicated manuscript tradition with Serranus. We don't actually have his original work, but we have enough of him quoted in later sources that we can reconstruct what he said. Yeah. Serranus wrote a chapter titled Concerning an Immensely Great Clitoris and Clitoridectomy. An immensely great clitoris. (laughs) Just like 10 out of 10. (laughs) And in this chapter, he talks about women, quote, affected by lust similar to men. And the word he uses for lust is tentigo, which is also a word which can mean an erection. These women, according to Serranus, have sex with men only when forced. The implication is pretty clear that he's talking about women who are attracted to women. His recommended treatment for these women is clitoridectomy. So he clearly sees a causal link between this physical masculinity and perceived masculine behavior. And we'll talk a bit more about this in the second section when we're talking about how Romans understood women's attraction to women in terms of whether it was an identity or a behavior. Do they conceptualize it as a woman's masculine behavior and masculine lust causing her clitoris to grow? Or do they conceptualize it as like her unusually large clitoris is making her behave as though it's a penis? I think in the case of Serranus, it's not 100% clear, but I guess he's thinking an unusually large clitoris is making her behave in a quote-unquote masculine way because of the treatment he suggests. Yeah, okay, that makes sense, yeah. But it's not always so consistent, and we will talk about that Mm, in the next section. Would we understand that, like, he's a doctor, if he's actually come across this, that it's mostly, like, intersex people that he's dealing with? Yeah, I think that these kind of passages are probably kind of expanding on Romans' existing knowledge of intersex people and Uh kind of tying that into their understandings of gender and sex and sexuality. Okay. But yeah, I assume that real-life intersex people are kind of, at the end of the day, what he's actually seen and is talking about. Yeah. Do you feel like there's enough scholarship on this stuff? About the intersex stuff? I don't actually know because I've never specifically sought out intersex scholarship. Yeah. And I guess, like, in particular, I'm thinking, like, the scholarship about, like, conceptions of sex and gender that incorporate mm. how Romans understood intersex people. Yeah, because Romans definitely like were aware of intersex people because intersex people exist in society and were kind of aware of different types of being intersex, but they really conflate that in with their understandings of gender and sex and sexuality. It's not like they said like we do, oh, there's intersex people and then there's, you know, same gender attracted people or anything like that. It was all yeah. kind of like, oh, your sex and gender and sexuality is a bit blurred from the norms here, all lumped together. So I'm wondering, like obviously this enlarged clitoris situation is often going to be intersex people. But there is also just a lot of natural variation Mm, in vulvas. Yeah. And I wonder where the line is, if that makes sense. Like, how do they make those calls? What's a normal clitoris size? Yeah. I mean, I guess it would be the thing where, like, if a woman had, like, quote-unquote problematic behaviour, like, she didn't Mm. want to have a husband or whatever, is it reasonable to assume that she might be taken to a doctor and the doctor might be like, well, what's this about then? Yeah. So, like, the recommended treatment for this condition of having an enlarged clitoris and this behaviour is a clitoridectomy. But because we have this from medical texts, a thing we're missing is like, who were these women and how did they get to the point where they were diagnosed with this and treated accordingly? And it's probably that their husbands or their fathers or something like that consider them to be behaving inappropriately. Uh Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So probably it really depends on how the individual woman is behaving and how the men around her feel about that. Yeah. I understand that, like there was a lot of infanticide of visibly intersex children mm-hmm. in the ancient world. So I guess actually yeah. maybe this isn't really necessarily intersex people, because most of them wouldn't be alive. I think 
there is some changes over time okay. in that. So, like, in Roman sources from around the time of Serranus, Pliny, talking about intersex people, he specifically says, like, we used to consider these people freaks. And then he says, but now we consider them, and I'm sorry, but now we consider them toys. And he's talking about their role as sex workers. Okay. Wow, that's horrendous. Yeah. Again, like, I just don't think there's much scholarship about this. Mm, I'm not aware of scholarship yeah, about this. Yeah, and like, I haven't spent a lot of time looking into specifically intersex history, but I am studying, like, gender in the ancient world, mm. and, I, and I feel like it does kind of get lumped in. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, in the modern day, a lot of intersex people don't consider themselves inherently queer because they're intersex, but mm. historically those histories are really intertwined. Yeah, which is sort of difficult, because yeah. I know that we've had people be like, why are you talking about this. Yeah, I don't think from the podcast, but in life, I have like experienced both sides of this of intersex people being like, why aren't you including intersex people? Yeah. And also intersex people being like, why are you including intersex people? Yeah. yeah. So I think which... there's disagreement in the community yes. to this day about where that stands. That is tricky. Yeah. Pliny is like pretty early on in this game of things, right? Like, when's Pliny? Pliny the Elder died in the eruption of Vesuvius, so that was in yeah. 70 okay, yeah. something so, like, CE. It's not like with, I mean, obviously, we're not talking about some kind of like third century text or something like that. Yeah. I think it's 77 is when Vesuvius erupted. It's about then. Okay. Oh, I guess my other question is, is a clitoridectomy something that you can just like reasonably do at this time? So, as I said, the manuscript tradition for Serranus is kind of hazy and we don't have his original work, but the, I think, either fourth or fifth century texts that we do have do include like quite specific and detailed medical instructions on how it was performed. Interesting. So, they definitely were doing it as a medical procedure that they were doing as safely as they knew how to do a medical procedure. Sure. I don't know for certain. Yeah, obviously. Know. Not like what, doctors yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And it is interesting to think whenever you come across these medical texts, like how did day to day practice look compared to what's written in these books? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That is really mm-hmm. interesting. So, to move on from that discussion of women attracted to women as being inherently masculine in some way, that is not the only thing at play here in this poem about Philinus. Oh, I forgot this is all about a poem about Philinus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is, we're still talking about Philinus. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> the poem ends with Philinus refusing to go down on a man, but going down on a woman. This upends completely the normal Roman understanding that performing oral sex on men or women is generally understood as a passive act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that Philinus is differentiating between going down on a man and going down on a woman and considering going down on a woman to be manly, which absolutely it was not in Roman norms, but going down on a man not to be manly is just basically completely throwing Roman sex norms out the window. So it's kind of like they're looking and they're like, okay, here's this girl, Philinus. She obviously has a very clear idea of what masculinity is because she's very committed to doing it. Mm. And she goes down on women. So is that masculine? Is that what's happening here? They're like, were we wrong? Is that masculine? I mean, I don't think Marshall is saying, were we wrong? Is that masculine? Because Marshall ends by saying, like, may the gods grant you your reason because you're so far off the mark, basically. Like, Yeah. But I think it kind of does point to the Roman anxiety about queer women of like, what are they doing? Is this masculine? Is this just upsetting all our understandings of sex? Like, how do we put this into how we understand sex? Yeah. Already? That final line really reminds me of the final line of Catullus 63 which is a poem depicting the mythological figure Attis castrating themselves, which is going to use that in pronouns for Attis. That's a problem for way down the line. (laughs) 
And, like, the final line of that poem is, like, praying to the goddess that Attis is a devotee of, mm. saying, like, keep your madness away from me, like, drive others mad, like, make mm-hmm. others do this stuff, but not me. Okay. And I just thought, you know, that's quite a direct parallel, really. It is, And being, yeah. like, this, like, kind of gender-bendy stuff, because a lot of the sexuality mm. transgression is gender-bendy stuff to the Romans. Yeah. Like, it's just crazy. Hopefully I don't go crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's definitely, like, within the Roman conception. It could happen to you. (laughs) (laughs) It could happen to your wife is more how they write about it. Maybe if you went down on her, it wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Only because we're talking about women. Like, they absolutely have those concerns as per Catullus 63. Yeah. With their own sorts of examples. Yeah, that's true. Like, men's masculinity is just as much. It's so fragile now and then. Yeah. Roman men's masculinity is incredibly fragile. And they're quite upfront about that in a way. Yeah. Like, all the things they think can, like, womanize you. Yeah. Maybe Philanus can tell you how to avoid that word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting because Philanus doesn't behave like an appropriate Roman man. Yeah, that's true. Like... I was thinking about this before, actually, when you were talking about what Seranus said, where he was like women who are like feeling lust in the way of men. Because mm. we've talked before about how feeling too much lust is not masculine in a Roman conception. Not quite. So, Roman men are meant to feel the lust. They're not meant to act on the lust. Okay. But That's guess- a very Catholic thing to <laughs> Where do you think the Catholics got it from? <laughs> uh, is like getting excessive like not manly though or is it just like you know you're not like in control of yourself yeah i think it's not manly for a man to do it like if this poem was about a man this man would still be way out of line he'd be out of line but would he be effeminate he would be soft is the word they would use okay he would be he would not be the peak of roman masculinity because of this like excess drinking and eating and sex yeah and i think that kind of goes with like philinus not conforming to sexual norms even for a man like mm. it's not possible in this context of this poem for Philinus, a person who was assigned female birth to become an appropriate roman man mm. no but i don't think it makes Philinus like less masculine no in this context because she's being painted as like you know, doing all the man things to this uncontrolled excess. I think it's different. Yeah. I think it's still manly when you're applying it to a woman. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's the point he's still trying to make. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to maybe if you applied it to a man. Yeah, no, that's fair. Like, yeah. the point he's trying to make about her is that she's, like, hyper-masculine. Yeah, she's hyper-masculine in a way that a respectable Roman man should not be, but it's definitely masculine for her yeah. compared to the behaviour of an acceptable Roman woman. He definitely kind of expresses it like, Philinus has something to prove, if that makes sense. He does, yeah. You do feel that. Like, Philinus is doing this to show you how masculine she is, kind of. I do kind of get that from the poem, yeah. So the poem starts off with a mention that Philinus also buggers boys. Yes. Is it worth making anything of that? Like, is that a particularly unusual thing, or is that just part and parcel, like, if you're a masculine woman, there's no real difference to the Romans to say, like, oh, she buggers boys, or she has sex with women? I don't think the Romans have a clear answer on that. So we have examples like Philinus who like buggers boys and pounds girls, as the opening line says. That's just kind of being like, Philinus does active masculine sex acts. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that line means. Sure, yeah. And Philinus isn't the only example we have of women that behave in this way. But at the same time, we do have Roman sources that sort of talk about women who are attracted to women exclusively and say, you know, this woman is masculine and plays the male role with women. 
and has no interest in men. Okay. So I don't think there's an easy answer. It's not like there was a box of like, this is what a queer woman looks like in that regard. But in this case, we're more talking about Felina's sexual activities as a representation of like the way she's trying to sort of show masculinity as opposed to directly talking about her sexual desires, if that makes sense. Felinus is performing masculinity. Like it defines her within a gender role yeah. while yeah. establishing a particular sort of sexual desire. Yeah. And I think the overall poem is more about Felinus's gender performance than it is about her sexuality. Yeah, that's the thing that I was trying yeah. to articulate. Yeah. Although, well thank you guys. Cool. <laughs> Although those things <laughs> are... <laughs> But yeah, those things are definitely inextricably linked. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It is interesting to see the nuances because I think there is somewhat of an assumption in scholarship about this, and maybe this isn't your experience. You're probably more up to date with scholarship than I am. But like, certainly, at least historically, there's been more discussion about this kind of thing as primarily sexuality, and maybe there's some gender in it. Whereas I think like they are much more mixed in than we've even really given them credit for. Absolutely, yeah. And this is definitely true as well of you know not to bring men up in this episode too much. Of men or like people assigned to male at birth, where there's a lot of scholarship talking about people as like gay men mm. when sometimes what we have evidence for is actually just like gender transgressive behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like we had the example of IFAS, which I kind of raise as the example of, you know, we're talking there about women attracted to women, but that is as much a story about like gender transition. And there are several other examples I could have used that also kind of straddle that line. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess in the context of Iphis, like you can read it as a story about Iphis's gender, or the part where Iphis is transformed into a boy mm. is not so much about Iphis or Iphis's sexuality or Iphis's gender as it is about the storyteller trying to find a resolution for this, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's also, I think, about society's requirements for a relationship between yeah. two people. Yeah. I mean, I guess we shouldn't let lose track of the fact that neither Iphis nor Felinus exist. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, these two girls need a happy ending. What do we need for a happy ending? We need a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think the story of Iphis and Ianthe is one of the few examples where two people assigned female at birth, or two women as they are understood at the start of the story, get a happy ending. But the only way it's able to happen is because one becomes a man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And most of the other examples are things like this poem about Philias, which are much more disparaging. Like, Ovid is quite sympathetic to Iphis. Ovid's all right. Ovid's all right. Like, horrific, but sometimes all right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, obviously, like, the metamorphosis is just, like, full of rape and stuff like that. Yeah. But, like, Mm. I think he's often a bit more sympathetic to his figures than like Marshall is. Yeah, and I think often a bit more kind of nuanced in looking at social norms. But like, you know, we're, we have a bell curve here and I'm like most of it's terrible. Yeah, and the bar <laughs> is low. <Yeah. laughs> so as you guys have already touched on, problematizing the act of passive split isn't the only way that sex between two women disrupts Roman norms. It also undermines the centering of phallic penetration and by extension the centering of men in conversations about sex. And it's very clear from Roman sources that men are uncomfortable with the idea of sex going on that is not about them. I'm thinking of that, we are uncomfortable if not about me, but... (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how Roman men feel about sex. (laughs) Yep. So the satirist Juvenal, writing around the end of the first century CE, makes this very clear. He writes about two women, Talia and Mora 
who go out at night to the altar of Pudicitia, which is the divine personification of Roman sexual morality and very specifically focused on women's sexual morality. So they go to this altar late at night and to quote, it's here that they halt their litters at night. It's here that they piss and fill the goddess's image with their powerful streams. <laughs> so they're defacing the altar, essentially. And they take it in turns to ride one another and thrash about with no man present. Then off home they go. I love that they go to the <laughs> temple to do this. They're like, ah, yes, the goddess of sexual morality. <laughs> Let's go there to have sex. And then, when the daylight has returned, you tread in your wife's urine on your way to call on important friends. Bro, can you just, like, chill out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this passage is obviously not just about female-female sex or the desecration of an altar, but it's also about the fact that it's happening under the cover of darkness, as Juvenal says, with no man present. And notably at the end of the passage, it shifts from being about two hypothetical women to being about the wife of you, the reader, who is a Roman man, and what she is doing without your knowledge, under your nose, as you try to make connections with important men. All right. So he's kind of really talking about, like, undermining Roman society. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Do you want to hear some more of that quote, just in case you didn't get the symbolism? Yeah. Can you it. imagine if your wife was, like, for real called Talia, and you were reading it, and you were like, oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'd have to yeah. be, like, writing this letter to Jim, and like, hey, not to be weird, but did you actually see these girls, or...? <laughs> so hypothetically, uh, uh, don't, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. So this isn't just about sex it's about like roman male control and the traditions of roman society like pudicitia and how it is being undermined so just to make that really clear let me read you the paragraph that juvenile writes before this paragraph at tully and mara the lead up to this he says about women in the old days it was their lowly position that kept latin women pure i'm sorry for everything i'm about to say <laughs> it's okay you are not possessed by the ghost of juvenile <laughs> if you were possessed by the ghost of juvenile that would also not be your fault yeah, <laughs> that's I guess true. That's true. what kept the contamination of vice from their tiny homes was hard work short sleep hands chafed and hardened from handling tuscan fleeces hannibal close to rome <laughs> <laughs> this is like the exact rhetoric of like sexist conservatives now. Oh, absolutely. Like, Britain has never recovered from World War II rationing, like, emotionally. <laughs> so, should Carthage be destroyed, or is it good to, like, keep the women in line? Yeah, I mean, who's to say? And he goes on. Oh, creepy. These days, we're suffering the calamities of long peace. Luxury has settled down on us. And you may remember from our previous episodes on Rome, culturally, Romans hate luxury. They think it's corrupting them and ruining them. Yeah, yeah. But Not also, in... they do it all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, they are very ostentatious, but they think it's morally wrong. <laughs> the Romans are so messed up. <laughs> the Romans are just, like, really struggling, yes. Yeah. And now I'm going to get some racism into mix. Cool. Corinth and Sybaris and Rhodes and Miletus have poured into Rome. So those are all other cities that Roman has taken over and now the people from those places are becoming a part of Roman society. It's just I like, hate Greeks. to tell you but like, <laughs> if you didn't invade them they wouldn't be here. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, and they are mostly Greek. Along with Tarentum, garlanded, insolent and sozzled. <laughs> it was filthy money that first imported foreign ways and effete wealth that corrupted our era with disgusting decadence. And then he talks about how your wife is sneaking off to have sex on the altar of Pudicitia <laughs> under cover of darkness <laughs> while you try to continue to live your upstanding Roman life. I just... Okay. <laughs> Do I need to say that? I was about to be like, imagine if like the British Prime Minister was like, we need to stop letting in foreigners or like your wife will go and peace on Westminster Abbey or whatever. But I couldn't remember the British Prime Minister. 
It's Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak. I got that. But I was like, actually, like, Boris did that. Please. But like, I feel like it's just not that much of a stretch to imagine you're like right wing politician kind of conflating the gays and the problems with immigration and something something upstanding Western society. You know, like you have yeah. heard all of these things in the one sentence before. Yeah, absolutely, not you. Rome is very far removed from us, but also like sometimes you hear things you're like, yeah, you hear that stuff today. Yeah. yeah, I also love how literally every generation ever is like, our generation is soft and terrible and full of luxury, unlike my grandfather's generation which was hard yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly remember how hard the first man was well the first man adam his name literally means like the earth right so hard <laughs> so hard yeah and this conflation of female homosexuality with greekness and foreignness also is not exclusive to juvenile if we go back to philanus in the latin a lot of the vocabulary about what she does so the sport she plays the wrestling she mm. does the food she eats are all borrowed words from Greek. Yeah, I was oh. going to say, isn't Philanus like a Greek name? Yeah, and Philanus is a Greek name. I yes. also have a Greek name. Have you considered a career path as laid out by Marshall? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy you a slab of VB after this and your training will begin. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so to wrap up this discussion of juvenile and kind of the way in which Romans felt threatened by female homosexuality, we see several themes coming together. Not just the lack of control of women who are meant to be in a lowly position, or as we've seen in other quotes, a passive position, but also the dangers of foreign influence, luxury, foreign money, and the overall degradation of society that this is causing. And all this culminates in a representation of female-female sex as something deceitful and a way in which women and by implication in this passage and in others, foreigners are sneakily undermining the role of Roman men, male control, and Roman tradition. So that's the end of our section about what Romans thought of female-female relationships. I now want to have a look at how they conceptualized women's attraction to women and whether they thought of it as innate, as some kind of illness, or as behavioral choice, or whatever else it might be. So the short answer to this question is that there is no consistent answer amongst Romans about how they conceptualized women's attraction to women. Well, I'm glad we've cleared that up so quickly. Thanks, we've been queer as fact. So we've already seen one of Serrano's explanations for attraction to women, that it's a medicalized issue linked to having an enlarged clitoris, with the understanding that there's some kind of causal link between what is perceived to be a masculine body and what is perceived to be masculine behavior. And as I said before, it does seem from the fact that Serrano suggests a clitoridectomy as treatment that he's implying an enlarged clitoris is the cause of attraction to women and its removal can treat it. So this positions attraction to women as a sort of disease having a physical cause. Elsewhere, however, Serranus categorizes tribidism as a mental illness, comparing unrestrained lust of women for women to drunkenness and adding, it is incorrect to think any treatment of the body should be applied for the sake of expelling passion, but rather the mind should be restrained, which is vexed by so great a defect. How does one restrain a mind? I don't really know. I don't know if he's just kind of saying these women need to exercise more self-control. Mm-hmm. Or how else you might interpret that? I'm not sure. He doesn't specify. What do you mean when you say he likens it to drunkenness? You mean he likens it to, like, being drunk? Or he likens it to, like, having an alcohol addiction? Or He likens it to drinking in excess, as we saw with Philanus. Okay. Like, excessive lust for women, excessive drinking of alcohol, similar things. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if people are going to be glad that we finally did this episode, or if they're going to be like, that was a bummer and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Who's to say? Hopefully the ending will be more upbeat. Oh, cool. When we're going to look at some sources that women may have actually had a hand in. I left them to the end so we can end on a positive note. Good thinking. (laughs) Yeah, so already from this one author, Saranus, we have two competing ideas of what women's attraction to women is and what causes it. And Saranus also raises other explanations as well, such as the suggestion that a woman will grow up to be masculine if she's nursed by a wet nurse who gave birth to a son. So the masculinity is obviously in the nurse's breast milk because she's meant to be feeding a son. So Saranus personally doesn't think this one is true. He points to the fact that there are male-female pairs of twins, so obviously, like... Wow, critical thinking. (laughs) Gender (laughs) can't be encoded in breast milk, but the fact (laughs) that he brings it up does show that it was something that was, you know... A possible explanation that existed in Roman society. Yeah. I'm genuinely impressed that he thought of a reason that that couldn't be true. That is not my experience <laughs> of historical doctors talking about queer stuff. <laughs> yeah, he had a moment of clarity. <laughs> Elsewhere, we see ideas of women's attraction to women and women's masculinity, which in the Roman mind are very linked, being much more innate. So looking at Roman astrological texts would suggest that they viewed female same-sex attraction and female masculinity as an inborn characteristic. Astrological texts provide several examples of combinations of planets and stars to be born under which would cause a woman to be attracted to women. And these are generally combinations that are perceived as masculine. So planets like Mars and Saturn associated with very manly male gods will play a big role and so will Venus, which is associated with love and lust. So those combinations are often what's at play here. Okay, so there are like gay sex star signs is what we're getting from this. Yeah. Okay. Yes, and Roman astrology is very complicated. I mean, as our astrology is today, so I can't tell you the specifics. How That's okay. different is Roman astrology to our astrology? Don't I'm, they have the same star signs? Yeah, they have the same star signs. Personally, I don't know much about our astrology beyond being like, look, I was born under this sign because I was born in this month. Yeah. But I think they're quite similar. Okay. Like, I think ours is a direct descendant of theirs. Yeah. So you too can have a gay sex yes. star sign. So if anyone wants to read these astrological texts who understands astrology, please tell us more. <laughs> And generally these gay sex star signs, as you call them, are also linked to other types of inappropriate sexual behavior, such as promiscuity, incest, or sex work. So this astrological model points to women's attraction to women as being an inborn, masculine, and inherently sexually inappropriate trait. So what is their plan to handle that? Obviously you can't just be like, please don't try and conceive in these months or you will have a gay baby if it's a girl. Like, what's their plan after that? They're like, this just naturally happens sometimes. Now what? So in astrological texts, there isn't really a plan, I don't think, because it's just kind of saying, hey, if you're born under these stars, this is how you'll be. So yeah, I don't really know what the plan is. Yeah, I just feel like once you've come to this conclusion where you're like, sometimes this just happens, then, you know, you can't kind of think of medical solutions for it. You can't kind of be like, oh, this will undermine society, because clearly in that case, this has always been happening. Like, mm, And there's kind of a conflict in these texts around that, where they'll often describe, you know, a woman born under these stars or whatever will be unnatural and they'll use words that mean unnatural to describe the ways in which this woman will behave, even though they are saying that this will just happen as a result of the time when she was born, which, you know, is natural. How mainstream is this kind of astrological argument? That's a good question and I don't necessarily know the answer. Like, astrology I think was pretty mainstream in Rome, but I don't know how specific this kind of sexuality-related part of it, like 
obviously we have texts that attest to this, but we can't really know how much these texts represent what the ordinary Roman on the street mm. thought. Because I know, obviously, that, like, religion was deeply embedded in your average Roman citizen's life, but I also know that they had concepts of someone being kind of, like, t- a bit too into it. Yeah, know, a bit too yeah. too superstitious and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know where to go with that, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and I think just because of how, like, we are so far distanced in time from ancient Rome and... You know, there are so many Roman sources and aspects of Roman life that are lost to us that we will just never understand. It is sometimes difficult for us to know how much a source we're reading actually represents mm. a generalised view. Oh, that's a bummer. So this idea that some women are just inherently masculine emerges outside of astrological texts too. In a collection of fables written in the first century by the author Phaedrus, he describes the creation of humanity. He talks about how Prometheus got halfway through creating people before stopping for a drink. When he came back, drunk, to finish the task, he messed it up, matching vulvas to men, creating tribides, and penises to women, creating what he calls soft, which generally for a Roman man means effeminate men. I've heard this story before. I think we've told this story on this podcast before. (laughs) It's so crazy to me that this is, like, for real an ancient source. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if I saw this post on Tumblr, I'd be like, like heck it was. And then I'd be like, oh, damn, okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That's what he said. And that story definitely creates an understanding of Trimides, women who are attracted to women, as being just innately the way they are. It's an innate part of who they are as a person. It's because Prometheus stuck a vulva and you by mistake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there is actually some debate in scholarship about whether Artribus would be a man who Prometheus stuck a vulva on by mistake or a woman who Prometheus stuck a penis on by mistake, linking into that idea of women with enlarged clitorises uh. being physically masculine. I generally think from reading the text that it really points to the understanding that they are men with vulvas because it's structured as like, here's how Tribides and soft men came to be. Prometheus stuck vulvas on men and penises on women. Like, it's structurally mirrored in that way, and I think it fits more with how Romans seem to understand gender and sexuality. Yeah, yeah. I somewhat struggle with this sort of thing because we have so many conversations about how, like, ancient sexuality doesn't work like one sexuality, and we need to, like, leave all assumptions at the door, but this just seems like sexual inversion theory. Yeah. Like, really just, like, a one-for-one. It really does. I just feel like we have, like, a very limited, you know, we've got, like, five things that we've, like, ever thought about sexuality. Yeah, and one of them is like the active passive model, and one of them is the one of them is like aren't gays really a woman though? <laughs> yeah, and it would be interesting to compare those two things. Yeah, and find the similarities and difference, and how society keeps producing them. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there are other like sort of sociocultural patterns that lead to certain understandings of these things. Mm. Like, if you could categorize these types of explanations. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that all seems enormously fraught. Yeah, obviously. Like, I would not attempt this. That <laughs> oh, seems like not. dangerous anthropology. We'll leave that to Will Roscoe. There yeah. is no one in the world qualified to do that comparison. No. no. I guess a group of scholars from around the world could do it together. Yeah. It's just all about gender. If we didn't have, like, man and woman as gender roles that, you know, there was various investment in enforcing, this stuff wouldn't happen. Yeah, no, absolutely not. <laughs> us going for it. <laughs> <laughs> we just stopped having gender. We just quit the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So as you can see from those various examples that I've provided you, and they're not the only examples of ways in which Romans explain women's attraction to women. There's some disparate examples. There's no one agreed upon explanation for why some women in ancient Rome were attracted to women or behaved in other ways that Romans perceived as masculine. The scholar Diana Swancutt brings all these things together by describing Roman gender as, quote, a spectrum of mutable binarized acts. That is, rather than each person simply having a binary gender aligned with their sex, or there being one reason why a person may, as Swancock puts it, traverse the gender scale. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are a variety of factors that can affect your gender in either to make it binary direction, as Romans understood it. So that might be the astrological sign of your birth. It might be what breast milk you drank as a baby. It might be how much you work out. It might be what role you play during sex. It might be an inborn masculinity or femininity, but all these things are factors in your life that can affect your gender and masculinize or feminize you. Um, Look, I guess that's somewhat nuanced. It is. It is certainly like at least I'm enormously relieved that the scholarship is somewhat nuanced. Yeah. 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 And I think the other thing about this, and this is my theory that I'm just like throwing together, is that all these things kind of feed into each other. So once you are, for example, born as a masculine woman due to your astrological sign, this may lead you to doing masculine activities like working out more, which may lead to what Romans see as the masculinization of your body. And for example, Tyrannus talks about how female athletes don't menstruate and how that's mannish and, you know, they can start menstruating again by Stop not it. working yeah. out so much and then they won't be so mannish anymore. You get on this slippery slope kind of of gender transgression. Mm. Yeah. Love that. And it's sexuality like, is one of the factors in this cycle. I'm loving this implication that you just could like take one misstep as a teen and bam, suddenly you're a man. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I haven't seen this probably played out with women as much, but for Roman men we absolutely see this kind of thought like, oh, you let yourself be penetrated and now you're out here wearing feminine clothing and, you know. There's this Roman quote, which I've probably quoted on this podcast before and I won't get it exactly right, which kind of talks about male gender transgression and talks about men or people assigned male at birth who are dressing in more feminine clothing and playing musical instruments. And the quote is basically like, your pudicitia is intact, you haven't been penetrated but there's a tambourine in your hand. And the implication is like, you know, you haven't sexually become emasculated, but you're you're becoming (laughs) a woman nonetheless. The implication that men can't play the tambourine in ancient Rome is wild to me. The tambourine is like associated with like Eastern. Oh, okay. Okay. And the East is effeminate. Yes. Yeah, that's true and continues to be true for some reason. Yeah, again, like... (laughs) (laughs) We've come so far, yet not far at all. No. So, throughout this episode, we've talked pretty exclusively about the ways in which Roman men depict relationships between Roman women, and I wanted to end by looking at two examples we have that may show the perspectives and experiences of real-life women. I like the way that it's May. This is still a little bit... (laughs) Yeah. I think Irene isn't going to be satisfied with this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Look, I am going to tell you the actual names of two women. Yeah. Are they more real than Talia and Morawa? Oh, yeah, no, these women absolutely existed. Oh, okay. Continue. Yeah, shocking twist. So there's a grave relief from the Augustan period, so that's around kind of the end of the first century BCE, that shows two women identified by an inscription beneath the grave relief as Fontea Eleusis and Fontea Helena, both freed women, that is former slaves, of a woman named Gaia Fontea. The relief is now in the British Museum, and unfortunately we don't know where it originally came from. So Good common. job. 
So this relief belongs to a tradition of funerary portraits of freedmen and women, which often depict them with their spouse and children or alongside other fellow freedmen and women. The art historian Diana Kleiner sees these portraits as a sort of substitute for the tradition among Roman citizens of funerary reliefs depicting themselves with their ancestors. So separated from their own families when they were enslaved, freedmen and women are showing themselves with the families they've created for themselves after being freed. This portrait of Helena and Eleusis is not the only one of these portraits which shows a same-gender pair. In 1977, Kleiner catalogued three such portraits of women and seven pairs of men. So you said that often they will show, like, a freed person with other, like, freed men and women. Yeah, so they're sometimes group portraits. Okay, but we can't, if we see two freed women together, we can't necessarily assume that they weren't just friends from the same household. Generally, that's true, but I'll tell you more about this one. (laughs) (laughs) So what's unique about this portrait of Helena and Eleusis is that they're clasping their right hands in a gesture known as dextrarum yugdio, which literally just means joined right hands. Even Um, I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) This gesture appears in a variety of Roman and older Greek and Etruscan contexts and symbolizes a bond of loyalty or fidelity. In the context of funeral reliefs, such as this one, it's usually associated with married couples. Oh, I see. So, for example, if there's a group, as you were talking about, in a relief, dextrarum yunctio will be used to show which pair among the group is a couple to distinguish them from those that are just, you know, friends or a household. Okay. So they're holding hands. So they're holding hands in a married way. Yeah. And dextrarum yunctio isn't exclusively used to depict marriage. In a funerary relief context in Rome, it generally is, but we do see it in other contexts that just kind of symbolize an important bond that may not be a marriage as well. So one scholar I read, who I think was somebody who actually worked at the British Museum in the department that has this relief, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name, suggested based on our perceived age difference between the two women that they may have been mother and daughter and it may have been showing the bond of loyalty between a mother and a daughter who had been through slavery and being free together. Is there any parallel use of this? There is not a parallel Roman use that I'm aware of. So as I said, it's also in other contexts like Greek and Etruscan contexts. Mm. And my understanding of this, which, you know, is not the be all and end all. I don't know about every relief that shows people clasping hands. Is that in a Roman context, it's generally for married couples, specifically in a funerary relief context. But the older examples do use it in other contexts too. Mm -hmm. And like, it does seem to be something that was used in Roman society for other things. Like the clasping of hands represents like an oath as it does to us today. Yes. Once again. (laughs) I feel like the Romans have a lot to answer for. (laughs) Like shaking hands to seal a deal. Yeah. How dare they? Did they really? And misogyny. They invented that too. (laughs) They invented that. Yes. We don't actually know what the relationship between Eleusis and Helena was, but whatever it is, they're definitely trying to depict a very strong bond between the two women that they wanted to be commemorated after their deaths. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole of thinking about if what they're depicting is a marriage... What does that look like? Like, what would that actually mean? You're about to do a whole John Boswell, aren't you? I'm about to do a whole John Boswell. (laughs) Alice. Well, I'm just kind of thinking about, like, what is Roman marriage? Like, we're going to argue this could show the equivalence of a marriage between two women. What are we actually arguing? Mm -hmm. I do feel like there is a problem where scholars will suggest something without kind of logically playing out what that would look like step by step. Mm -hmm. So first off, Romans believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. And we can see that pretty clearly because they talk legally about what happens if, you know, one partner is a eunuch, for example, and how that's not a marriage. 
because that's not a man in their eyes. But Romans did recognize a concept that they called contubernium, literally meaning shared tent. Mm. And it described marriage between two people who couldn't legally marry under Roman law. So generally it's used for two slaves because slaves couldn't legally marry. Evidence suggests that in all but legal recognition, these relationships were the same as marriage. They included some kind of wedding ceremony and party for the couple. They can be seen commemorated on tombstones as long-term committed relationships and even with reference to like how many years they were married and, like, celebrations of a wedding anniversary. Okay, so they're like a social marriage but not a legal marriage. Yeah. And freed slaves, such as Helena and Elisus were, also use this same word to describe their long-term relationships sometimes. So I'm not, you know, saying there's evidence that they had this relationship, but there is a model within not only Roman society, but the specific kind of part of Roman society that they would have been moving in, for marriages that cannot be legally recognised but are nonetheless socially seen as marriages. We have some of these between men. Okay. Or between a man and a person assigned male at birth. So, like, one of the pieces of evidence that I'm using for my thesis are tombstones from four members of this, like, cult of the Mm -hmm. Magna Mater. And one of them is for someone who's called an Archigalus, who... Like, there's a lot to unpack about this. We're going to do very well research. So one day when I got my thesis, who was someone who was assigned male at birth, who had a cult role, but who presented in a more feminine way and who mm. might have been castrated. There's a lot to unpack there, but we'll just move along. And <laughs> their tombstone is written or like sort of dedicated by their partner, mm-hmm. their contubernalis, who was uh-huh. a man. And it says they lived together for 31 years on there. Oh, well, there you go. That really supports my wild hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. I think there are a few other examples as well. Like, I think I've heard about these sorts of things because I have definitely heard people kind of debate the use of this term contubernalis. Mm. You know, is it inherently when used of two men or of two people who are both assigned male at birth? You know, one of them might not have a male social role or both of them, I guess. I don't know if we have any examples of that. Does it necessarily imply this kind of romantic relationship or not? Because, you know, it's like, as you said, it just sort of means like you share a room or whatever it doesn't necessarily mean this is my husband but it is most often used like that and and it is a very reasonable reading of those Mm -hmm. sorts of funeral inscriptions yeah absolutely and like between a man and a woman it very much is like we have examples of think from literature rather than real life but examples nonetheless of a man calling his female contuminalis his wife yeah, like the yeah, word okay. uxor, which is the Latin yeah. word for wife. Like, it is sometimes just translated as spouse. Yeah. And yeah. very reasonably so. Yeah, like, Romans had various kinds of marriage, and it's reasonable to say this was one kind. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that, like, I think is reasonable speculation that even if these two women were not, that we can see a way that two women may have chosen to recognize a marriage between them. And it's worth noting that most Roman funeral monuments have been destroyed, just from, like, time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing a bunch of research into these recently, and I can't remember where this figure comes. I could dig it up. Where, like, it's estimated that of surviving Roman sarcophagi, we have something like, you know, 7% or something. Oh, okay. Just because time happens. There wasn't any big destruction that we did on purpose or anything. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, they're 2,000 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So if, like, you know, one in a thousand were queer, we would never know. Yeah, Um, like, having a couple that are queer represent hundreds that were queer that are lost. Yeah. Like, probably. Probably, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, there was one lesbian in Rome. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, like, a very tiny statistic possibility that we have the one lesbian tombstone, (laughs) but obviously that's pretty far-fetched, right? And interesting thing about this tombstone as well is that, so it depicts two women and it's clear to us that it depicts two women the names are women's names 
But in the centuries following, around the 4th or 5th century, it was recut in an attempt to make it look like it depicted a woman and a man. Oh. But the text wasn't changed. So (laughs) So we figured it out. Your plebs can't read Latin. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, it's clear to us, both from what the people look like and from the text, that it did depict two women, but there's been an attempt to erase that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in that case, at least we can say for certain that in the 3rd or 4th century, whenever this was happening, this looked queer enough to make them uncomfortable. Mm. That's true, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's absolutely true. Yeah, and we don't really have any more information about when or why that happened, Mm. unfortunately. I did find a paper about it which may explore whether that's like something we have other examples of, like recutting something that looks queer to look straight. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, we'd have to look into that. I kind of stopped there because that was starting to look at Christian attitudes to sexuality, which is a whole other kettle of fish that we just do not have time for today. We're going to get there. We'll get there one day. We're going to run out of pagan Roman stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely want to hear about early Christian gays. Well, oh, me too. But it's, yeah. like, it's very common that sources on you know, just a Roman topic in general, but also on Roman sexuality or gender, will kind of be like, and then we're up to Christianity and that's like, you know, a whole new ballpark, so I'm mm. stopping there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like fair enough. who pick it up, but like, it's, mm. in my experience, a lot of stuff just sort of stops when it gets up to Christianity. So I, yeah. like, I would also like to hear about it, but I don't know how that would look like from a research perspective. Yeah. yeah. So finally, I want us to end with a discussion of a poem, which we also talked about in our episode on Pompeii and which, as far as I know is the only example we have of Roman love poetry by a woman about a woman, or at least in the voice of a woman about a woman. Mm. So this poem was preserved in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 CE. There you go, that corrects my claim that it was 77 CE before. (laughs) (laughs) The queerness isn't immediately apparent in English, so bear with me, I'll read it to you in English and then I'll explain the queerness in Latin. The poem goes, Oh, if only I could hold your little arms wrapped around my neck and then press kisses to your tender little lips. Go then, little doll, trust your happiness to the winds. Believe me, the nature of men is fickle. Often I would lie awake, lost in the middle of the night, thinking to myself, many whom fortune has lifted up high, those suddenly hurled away and falling headlong as she then oppresses. So too, after Venus has unexpectedly joined the bodies of lovers, daylight divides them and... And then it trails off. It's incomplete. Mm. Okay. In Latin, the gendered language makes it obvious that both the speaker and the subject are women. So in the first half, the word pupula, which was translated here as little doll, is a feminine word. Yep. If it was a man, it would be pupulus. So that makes it clear that the subject of the poem is a woman. And then in the second half, the word perdita, which means lost, as in I was lying awake lost in the middle of the night, is also feminine, referring to the speaker. So again, if it was a man, it would be perditus. Scholars in the 20th century have tried their very best to interpret this not as a love poem by a woman about a woman. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm a woman who would love to kiss you, a woman. Mm, Venus does draw lovers together. <laughs> what could it be? What could it be? So there's a few examples. One argument is that we cannot assume that the embracing and kissing described in the opening lines is romantic or sexual, and we should instead read this as a poem about two very good friends. <laughs> she named Venus specifically. Yeah, this argument never kind of gets the line, Venus brings the bodies of lovers together, which like... There's no way around that. Yeah, if I I'm said sorry. that to you in like a text, Irene, you'd be like, you're like, what the fuck? Wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> so like generally I would say, yes, it's worth examining our own cultural assumptions when we see someone talking about kissing and mm. assume that that's romantic or sexual. But lie. But the, the lovers, Venus, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know. Citation. <laughs> you know, that's my citation. That reading also seems to come from a clear position of cultural bias. Yeah, like... I, it, I guess if we want to say something more than, you know. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that also comes from a cultural bias of assuming that two women wouldn't be romantically or sexually involved until you've eliminated all other possibilities. Yes. So other scholars have tried to deny the queerness of the poem by suggesting that it is split into two halves. The first in which a man describes the woman he loves, his pupula, wishing to embrace and kiss her and warning her against the fickleness of men. And then the second half in which that woman responds to the man, describing how she's lying awake at night thinking about Venus joining the lovers together. I guess that's less of a stretch. You know, it's a possible reading of the poem, but it's circumstantial. You have yeah. to be looking for a heterosexual poem yeah. to find that reading. Yeah. And similarly, others have suggested that just that line, go then, Pupula, trust your happiness to the winds, men are fickle, is the woman who is the speaker of the poem addressing herself rather than addressing her lover in the one time she uses that feminine term for the person she's addressing. Yeah, again, I feel like, look, maybe it's possible, but you would have to be actively looking and being like, hmm, seems like this is a woman in love with a woman. What else can I do here to avoid it? Yeah, or being like, I cannot even conceptualize a woman in love with a woman. How can I possibly read this poem? When do these interpretations date to? Throughout the 20th century. Okay, yeah. I haven't got specific authors or dates for any of them, but throughout the 20th century. Yeah. And, like, the first person to find this poem or to write up the finding of this poem, an Italian archaeologist in the 1880s, straight up said it was a poem by a woman about a woman. Oh, well, good on him, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, like, worth mentioning that this has also been applied to Sappho's poetry. Mm, yeah. Sort of readings mm. like this was a man who wrote in the guise of a woman or this was, like, a woman who wrote, you know, from the point of view of a man, you know, like... Yeah. No, you see the... Oh, no, she was writing from the point of view of a man, like, quite often when you're reading people try and interpret Sapphic poetry. Which, yeah. like, yeah. just isn't that common a thing to do. <laughs> No, like it happens, but it's not yeah. like every woman out there is like, you know what would be a fun literary exercise? Yeah. <laughs> and like, frankly, if you're a woman poet who like every day writes in the point of view of a man, like you're doing something. Yeah, you're That's experiencing true. a gender. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. should probably explore. There are quite a lot of examples in Roman literature of men writing from the point of view of women, which is kind of a more common argument made yeah. about this. But, you know, again, it's circumstantial. Why would you assume it's a man writing about a woman when you could think it was a woman writing about a woman? Yeah. And I think the answer to that often just comes down to misogyny. Mm. So, like, 20th century classicist G.P. Gould, for example, argued that this poem couldn't have been written by a woman because, quote, we have no evidence that girls participated in formal education beyond a rudimentary level or wrote poetry. Now, that's just not true. We know that there were literate Roman women. Hmm. That's also, like, the same argument by which those, like, Shakespeare truthers work. <laughs> that's true, actually. You know, those people who are like, nah, Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare. He was just some commoner. Has to be a noble who wrote Shakespeare. Yeah, 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 that theory. And I think the other thing with this, like, we have no evidence that women wrote poetry. Like, sure, we have very little attested Roman poetry by women. But if we discount every example we find because women can't write poetry, we're never going to find any. Mm. That when, is correct. We're never going to build up a corpus and understand what women's poetry may have looked like. Yeah. So it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And also, um, frankly, like, if you have a rudimentary education, like, if you can read and write, you can write poetry. It might be bad poetry, but you can do it. Yeah. And actually, I do want to talk about, like, that now in terms of the quality of the poetry and what it says about the person who wrote it. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to talk about with regard to the authorship of this poetry is that we have no way of knowing if the author was the person who wrote it on the wall. 
Mm, good point. So there are many examples throughout Pompeii of people transcribing poetry that we recognize from elsewhere onto walls as graffiti. That's a pretty cool form of graffiti, frankly. Yeah, it's and a I pretty think cool form of graffiti. We should bring that back. Yeah, I think we should. So there are many aspects of the way this poem is written that do suggest that it's a somewhat poor transcription of an existing poem. Yeah. So I won't get into too much nitty gritty Latin, but we're going to do a little bit of Latin. Yeah. Okay, it's Latin class time. Uh, so I'll give you one example. Latin poetry, like English poetry, is written in meter. So there's combinations of short and long or emphasized and unemphasized syllables that give the lines a rhythm. Uh Yeah. So the second line of this poem, press kisses to your tender little lips, ends with the word labella, which means little lips. And it's a diminutive of the word labra, which means lips. The word labra, if used at the end of this line, would give this line a regular meter. It would make it work. If you think of it from like an English poetry perspective, it would make it rhyme. If you okay. want to really simplify it. They mm-hmm. don't rhyme, but that's the same yeah. kind of idea. But labella does not. So that suggests that the writer may have misremembered the word labra as the word labella and used the diminutive by mistake, which upsets the meter of the poem, but keeps the meaning. Have we considered the possibility that the writer is adapting a heterosexual poem? Yes, that is also absolutely a possibility. And we do see other examples in graffiti of people changing the pronouns in a poem. Yeah. Like a poem we know and they change the gender of the subject of the poem, obviously, to suit what they wanted it to be. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, like, I can't speak in any kind of expert way about Roman ideas of femininity or what women are like, but it seems to me not that big a stretch to shift a poem from being like, I want to kiss your lips about a man, to being like, I want to kiss your sweet little lips to address a woman. Absolutely, and I think like it probably doesn't make sense in that specific context because we see diminutives used throughout that first section. Yeah, But the point you're making is absolutely right. This could be a poem that existed and was a heterosexual poem that has been adapted to become a queer poem. Yeah. I love this, yeah. like, hypothetical lesbian graffiti artist. Yeah. yeah. It's like the ancient Rome equivalent of when you cover a song without changing the pronouns. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly the same or thing. Like yeah. with the or, pronouns. with, with yeah. changing the pronouns. To make the pronouns. them gay, but not yeah. to yeah. make them straight. Yeah. None of yeah. that Santa buddies. How does that song even work? Isn't that, like, specifically about making out with Santa? I don't know. I've never actually listened to Michael Bublé's cover of this song. I just heard about it. Yeah, I know it exists. Yeah. That's all I know. Maybe he's like, we can fist bump. so if this is a transcription of an existing poem there's a couple of possibilities of what's happening here and you've raised one irene that this is a queer transcription of an existing heterosexual poem it also raises the interesting possibility that there was just a queer poem circulating in pompeii in the 70s (laughs) ce in the 1970s Yeah, that there was just this queer poem circulating and it happened to be preserved because of the volcano. It doesn't seem that likely based on what we've kind of talked about throughout this episode about how Romans felt about queer women, but it's a possibility. And like, you know, we have, for example, the myth of Iphis, which does talk about queer people assigned female at birth in a sympathetic way. It doesn't seem that unlikely because like mainstream feelings about women who have sex with women if you think about today's society are quite separate from Mm. what a lesbian might write on a wall like lesbians may be sharing poetry about Mm. lesbians while everyone else is like "Hmm, we should cut off their clitoris absolutely and i guess that's also 
a valid point that the literature that comes down to us, which is this mostly pretty damning stuff that we've talked about throughout this episode, is obviously coming from elite men, but graffiti is coming from everyone. Yeah. And we can't necessarily assume that everyone on the street agreed with what elite men believed about sex. Yeah. Yeah, like, it seems not unlikely to me that there are a bunch of queer women in Pompeii who are just writing on the walls about their lovers. Yeah, absolutely. It's a possibility. Another possibility is that this poem is what is called a centos. So a centos is a poem created by combining lines or stanzas from other poems. And we see this elsewhere in Latin tradition and in Pompeian graffiti. So we can't find specific sources for most of the lines in this poem, but the line Venus has unexpectedly joined the bodies of lovers is almost identical to a line by the 1st century BCE poet Lucretius. So this person could have just been inspired by Lucretius and written their own poem, but it's also possible that this poem is actually pulling together bits of existing and probably heterosexual poetry to create their own kind of medley that is queer. Yeah, okay. And last thing I wanted to mention about this poem is that interestingly below the poem, a second person has added a few words. Oh. Oh. Throwing that in there. New data. New data emerges. So they're very difficult to read, but they appear to be a fragment of a quote from Ovid, who we met at the start, who wrote the myth of Vipus. Part of a line which reads, Jealous wall, why are you standing between two lovers? This comes from Ovid's poem about the heterosexual lovers Pyramus and Thisbe, which suggests that at least one person read this poem on the wall and saw it as, you know, a poem they could take seriously, something that paralleled the male-female romances that they'd seen in literature. Yeah. Not only do we have the existence of somebody who wrote this poem, who obviously saw love between women as something to be represented in, you know, quite a serious, sympathetic poem, but also we have a second person who read this poem and responded with the same understanding. Mm. It does kind of throw out that they were just friends interpretation. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, like, this final line is very hard to read. So it would be quite easy to say, oh, that's not what it says. And keep your they were just friends interpretation. Okay. It's hard to read, but this is like relatively convincing as a... Yeah, it is relatively convincing. Okay. I did not find a more convincing reading of it. I'm sold on this. Mm. Okay. But I acknowledge that you could argue against it. Mm. Is there anywhere else a kind of graffiti norm of responding to someone's poetry with another poem? Yeah, it's quite common in graffiti in general and with poetry to see kind of conversations on a wall. Okay. I guess that what we can take from this, this poem specifically, and this episode in general, is that, like, we could sit down a lot and be like, is this poem from a queer woman to a queer woman, etc. But at the end of the day, we don't actually need to prove that queer women existed in ancient Rome. No, I mean, we know queer women existed in ancient Rome. Yeah, Yeah. like, that's a given. And so I guess we can just look at it and be like, here's a possible example of what that might look like. In the same way that we looked at that potential marriage, and we can be like, here's a possible example of what that might look like. It doesn't become useless to us if the reality of that specific example was not that they were queer. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to end with these examples, because so much of the scholarship and so many of the sources that are commonly looked at are just men damning queer women in various ways and then scholars kind of saying okay so this is how romans understood queer women this is how they thought about women having sex this is how they thought about women's sexuality and gender and so little discussion ancient and modern is actually about what would the life of a queer woman have looked like in rome if you were a woman attracted to women in ancient rome how might you have expressed that what might have your relationships looked like what models could you have used to be queer and we have a few possible answers to that 
With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else it is you find your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it if you rate us and leave us a review, as that helps us to reach a wider audience. And if you do leave us a review, we might also read it out on this podcast, as Eli is about to do now. So, this review is from Audrey Cooper, who is from Australia. Hello, oh, cool. Aussie. Hey. Oui, oui, oui. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Audrey. And it is titled, Love This Podcast So Much, and it is five stars. They have written, this podcast is informative and fun to listen to. As a history nerd, I love and appreciate the attention paid to sources throughout the episodes. I also love that the conversational format of the podcast means that any time I have a question or need clarification, one of the hosts will ask it for me. <laughs> that was the goal when that we planned this structure. It's very satisfying. The open discussion about how historical figures may have identified as very refreshing. The asexual inclusion is especially validating. Oh, very nice. Thank you, yes. Audrey. If you want to find more Queer as Fact content in between our episodes, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. Or you can also email us directly if you want to get in touch at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can sign up to our Patreon. You'll get access to perks such as bonus episodes, our monthly newsletter, and Queer as Fact merch. And if you just want the Queer as Fact merch, you can also go to Redbubble and buy that there. You can find links to everything I've just mentioned on our website, which is queerasfact.com. We'll be back on the 15th of March when Eli will be talking to us about 20th century British lichenologist Elka McKenzie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.